All right, well, this morning you can turn over in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, we finally made it. (laughs) Uh, We're in chapter 12. I recalled this past week as I was studying for this sermon, this message this morning, that when we started this book, you know when we started it? Back in September 23rd, 2018. (laughs) So it's been a couple years, 51 messages later. Um, The reason I bring that up is I remember when we started, I said I was going to start through the book of 1 Corinthians, and a lot of you were excited. And I remember many of you asking, are we going to study the spiritual gifts? I said, yeah, we are. More specifically, are we going to learn more about what the Bible says about tongues? Yeah, we are. And my answer was always the same. Yes, but you're going to have to be patient. <laughs> because we've got a couple chapters to get to before we get to chapter 12. And we believe in teaching through the Bible, not just pulling willy-nilly verses out of context. And so as we've been teaching through 1 Corinthians, we finally have made it to some chapters that deal with spiritual gifts. And that is chapters 12, 13, and 14. And it, it goes all the way to the end of chapter 14. And I encourage you, the next couple months as we're going through this, it's going to take a while to get through this because we have to lay a nice foundation. We have to understand some background information, a good introduction. And then we'll get in specifically and begin talking about the different kinds of gifts and different views concerning those gifts. But so far, um, as we have been in the the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, we've seen a lot of problems in the church. They've had a a lot of problems. And so starting in chapter 12, we're going to actually begin, I would call it, one of the most interesting, one of the most fascinating, one of the most controversial probably one of the most divisive sections of God's Word in the church today. It deals with spiritual gifts. And so far, as we've gone through this, we've seen all these problems. In fact, there's problems in almost every chapter of the the letter to the Corinthian church. And I've put them there in your outline. I think you have a little list there. The problem of divisions in the church. We looked at that early on in chapter 1, the problem of worldly wisdom. We looked at the problem of carnality or fleshly desires. We looked at the problem of immorality in their church. We looked at the problem of taking a fellow believer into court and suing them. The Bible forbids that. Um, We looked at the problem of fornication, the problem of marriage and divorce, the problem of meats offered to idols, should you eat that meat or not as a believer. And we've been looking at the last several weeks the problem of uh, men and women roles within the church and also the problem that they had around the Lord's table, that they were abusing the Lord's supper. And so now we come to the problem of spiritual gifts in chapter 12. Now, obviously, the Corinthian church had some issues. Would you agree? They clearly had some issues. I mean... But you know what? Lest we look down at that church, down our self-righteous noses, every church has issues. (laughs) Even a small little church like ours, we got issues. Why? How can I say that? 
well, I'm part of this church, and I know I got issues. And I know you're part of this church, and you probably got issues too. We all have issues. We're not perfect. No church is perfect. As a matter of fact, if you ever find a perfect church, please don't join it. Because it won't be perfect any longer. None of us are perfect. So this section deals with spiritual gifts. It goes from chapter 12 all the way through chapter 14. And we're going to be working our way through this very important section of Scripture verse by verse. So it's going to take some time. So once again, I ask you for your patience. Today we're really just kind of introducing it. We'll look at the first couple words of verse 1. But I would have to say one of the hottest subjects in the evangelical church today is that of spiritual gifts, especially the spectacular gifts. And what I mean by that is the gifts like speaking, they they call it speaking in tongues. It's actually languages, but speaking in tongues or the gift of divine healings or the gift of miracles. People are just fascinated with those. And it's such a controversial issue Because I believe for many years, mainline denominations have forgotten to teach about the spiritual gifts. They thought it's too controversial, we don't even want to touch it. If we teach about spiritual gifts, we'll probably lose half our congregation. And we need the money, so therefore we're going to avoid it. That's unfortunate. And so really, the Pentecostal charismatic movement has hijacked the idea of spiritual gifts, and it's probably one of the fastest growing groups in Christianity today. We would call it the Word of Faith movement or the Charismatic movement. Now, Martin Luther said, he wrote in a hymn, we sing this hymn often, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You know that hymn, right? We remember one of the verses says this, The Spirit... And the gifts are ours. And that's true. See, we don't want to deny that there's spiritual gifts. Just because maybe it's a little controversy. We, we don't want to deny it. We don't want to turn our back to this truth. And I can't help, as I've been reading through chapters 12, 13, and 14 this past week. It was kind of like all of a sudden a little light bulb went on. And I thought, okay, chapter 12 deals with you know, spiritual gifts and one body being many members. And then if you turn over to chapter 14, it talks about prophecy and tongues. But right in the middle, right smack dab in the middle of chapter 12 and chapter 14 is chapter what? 13. And what does chapter 13 deal with? Love. Love. See, I think we've forgotten in the church today that God gave spiritual gifts to the church not to divide it, but to unify it. And one of those unifying factors is the love that we share together in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't teach truth. It doesn't mean that we don't call error or heresy into account. But we have to make sure that we do it in a loving way, in a way that expresses the love of Christ. There's a lot of well-meaning people who are caught up in a lot of erroneous teaching today concerning spiritual gifts. And they're well-meaning believers. But they're being taught something 
that is not in accord with Scripture. And so we're going to be looking at this. And so Paul speaks about love in chapter 13, and he surrounds that chapter by controversy. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, If we love Christ as we think we do, as we pretend we do, we shall love his church and his people. Paul points out here in this section of Scripture, these couple chapters, that Christian love is the most important of all the gifts from the Spirit of God. He called the Corinthian church to pursue love. As a matter of fact, he went as far as to say without love, you can have all the spectacular gifts you want, but they amount to nothing. And perhaps there's no area of biblical doctrine that has been more misunderstood, more abused, more divisive, even within the evangelical church, than that of the spiritual gifts, teaching on the spiritual gifts. Yet I really believe that there's, there's no doctrine, there's no study that you could do that's more important to the spiritual health and the effectiveness of the church today. And so because some have hijacked the teaching on spiritual gifts and turned it into a circus, a lot of churches say, well, we don't want to deal with it. And they're missing a tremendous blessing. Apart from the direct empowering of God's Spirit, I really believe that nothing is more vital to believers than the ministry of their spiritual gifts. Understanding that God has given them certain gifts, endowments, for Christian service and Christian ministry. That's so important to understand. And so we have to understand here, Paul is teaching us in these chapters that our spiritual gifts should unite the church, bring us together, not divide it. Well, guess what? That wasn't the case in Corinth. (laughs) Everything divided them, including their spiritual gifts. They had a lot of failures, and I put them there on your outline. Corinthians' failures in the area of spiritual gifts. They had a skewed view of spiritual gifts, an unbiblical view. That's why Paul had to write them and correct them as the one who founded the church there. They took... Personal pride was one of their problems in their spiritual gifts. And we do this today. There's some people that do this today within the church. I have the gift of prophecy. Oh, I have the gift of teaching. Well, I have the gift of helps. You have to be careful. You didn't earn that gift, you don't even deserve that gift. That gift was given to you by the grace of God. Down in chapter 12, verse 11, it says, all these these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who, look at what it says, apportions or gives out to each one individually as the person wants. doesn't say that, does it? It says, as he wills. As he wills. See, we make a big brouhaha over your spiritual gifts. Now, there's nothing wrong with understanding what your spiritual gifts are and utilizing them for the glory of God. We encourage that. But we don't want to take it too far. You know, when you go through a membership class here, we give you a little, we call it a spiritual gift assessment. And I kind of bristle at it because some people take it the wrong way. Some people take that little 
quiz. There's nothing hard about it, but it just kind of talks about your personality and maybe what you enjoy. And it kind of points you in a direction. Maybe this would be good for you to serve in this area. So it asks you questions like, you know, do you like to be in a group of people? Um, do you enjoy serving? Do you enjoy different things? And, and by the end of the, 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 the assessment, you're kind of going, well, it, it seems like I, I would do good in this ministry. But some people, unfortunately, have taken that test and said, oh, man, you know what? I thought I wanted the gift of teaching, and I don't have it. How can I get it? <laughs> and they missed the whole point. See, these, these gifts are given out by God as he wills. I would even go as far as to say it's not even that important that you understand what your spiritual gift is. Why? Why would I say that? Because I think the Holy Spirit knows what it is. And I think if you're the kind of Christian that says, Lord, just use me, you may not even understand what your gift is. But God will use you. I talked to one man in a church. I started my ministry as a youth pastor, First Baptist Church, an older man. And we talked about spiritual gifts. He had been in the church forever been a blessing to so many people over, you know, 50-some years in this church. And I remember him saying, well, I don't think I have a spiritual gift. And I thought, are you kidding me? I can think of three or four spiritual gifts that you probably have. But see, it didn't matter whether he knew he had them or not. As a matter of fact, it's probably best we don't know, (laughs) right? Because when we find out what our spiritual gift is, then we we tend to, you know, wear it like a crown, (laughs) I have this gift. I have that gift. That's what was going on in the Corinthian church. They began to compare gifts. Well, how, how come that person gets to do that? I don't want to. I want to do that. And they began to whine and criticize each other. They took personal pride in their gifts. Secondly, they were more interested in using their gifts for personal fulfillment than for the good of the body. I mean, they were having issues being united as a church. They were too busy focusing on themselves individually. They didn't even consider what was best for the greater good of the body of Christ. And that even applied to their view of spiritual gifts. And Paul has to set them in order. He has to show them, wait a minute, you're acting prideful. You're acting selfish concerning your spiritual gifts. That shouldn't be. This isn't something you created. This is something that God gave you. And you need to use it for his glory. They were actually fighting over which gift was more important. You know, it'd be like if, if we came in here Sunday morning and said, wow, you know, the, the people that serve over in the kitchen and prepare the meal, we used to do a meal every week. We don't do it with the COVID thing right now, but... They're the most important. Well, no, I think it's the people that pray before the service. No, I think it's the, the person that gets up and teaches, or I think it's the Sunday school. And you're actually arguing over that. That would be very wrong, would it not? It'd be ridiculous. Their dilemma was really, it's illustrated in a story I heard about a certain sea captain. He had a ship, and he had a chief engineer on his ship. And one day they got got into it. And they began to argue. They were arguing over which one of them was more important to the ship, the captain 
or the chief engineer. And they couldn't agree. You know, they argued for hours. And finally, they threw their hands up and they said, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to swap places. Captain, you go down there in the engine room. And chief engineer, you come up here on the bridge. And you steer the ship. Well, you can imagine... As the chief ascended to the bridge, he felt pretty good about himself. And as the captain descended down into the engine room, he thought, oh, this can't be hard. Well, after a couple hours, the captain suddenly appeared on the bridge, covered with oil and soot. He said, chief! He had a monkey wrench in his hand, and he's waving this monkey wrench. He said, you're going to have to come down here. I can't get this ship to go. Well, the chief replied to the captain, of course you can't. I ran it aground. See, they were both trying to do a job they weren't gifted or called to do. And see, that's what we have to be careful of in the church. And that's what Paul wants us to see. Paul has really, right when you think Paul's run out of ways to show you that the church should be united, he comes up with something else. And this is what he does here. He reaches back into the, his seemingly limitless resources and brings out another thing that unites the church. That's what the, the theme is here. The fact that God gives gifts to the members of the church. And so these particular chapters can be of great help to us as believers, as Christians, and even as a church today. Because we desire to continue to build Unity within the fellowship, even of our small body here. And you, you see this principle all around the world, really, the, the principle of unity, the principle of, of kind of a teammanship. When you go to an athletic event, maybe some of you have played athlete, uh, different athletics, basketball, football, tennis, whatever. Usually when you go to one that's represented by a team, there's several players on that team. And they all have different positions to play, don't they? They don't all play the same position. They all play different positions. And they all have different skills. You know, if you have a, a, a wide receiver, usually he's tall and lanky. And he's fast. But you don't want somebody who's tall and lanky on your front line in a football game, right? You want somebody that's got some weight to them. They can hunker down there in the mud and prevent anyone from attacking their, their quarterback. They have different skills. They have different positions to play. And that very fact is the source of their unity as a team. That's what makes it possible for them to play as a team and win. And the same is true even when you go to a concert, when you go to the symphony. Think about it. There's a great variety of instruments played and and skills required of all the players. But all those instruments and all those different musicians create What? A masterpiece, a musical unity as they give a concert. They're all doing what they have been gifted to do, what they've been called to do, what they've even been trained to do. And they come together to provide something beautiful for everyone to hear. But see, often in the churches today, unfortunately, we tend to seek unity through conformity. 
What do I mean by that? A lot of churches, unfortunately, believe that if you're going to be part of their church, you have to conform. You have to be like everybody else in that church. There are some churches that actually put their their pastor on such a pedestal that everybody's to be like him. I went to a church like that when I was a youth pastor, brand new in ministry. I went back to a church called First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana. And the pastor there was Pastor Jack Hiles. He was, you know, probably a medium stature guy. And he had these black rim glasses. And when he'd get up, he'd just, he'd preach like he was shouting till he was hoarse. And I never forget going to this, this conference with the pastor at First Baptist Church in Fremont. We didn't fly, we drove. He was kind of a cheapskate, real conservative with his money. He goes, oh, we're not going to fly. I said, we're not going to fly all the way back to Indiana? No, he goes, I have this Honda little CRX, those little tiny cars. We're going to drive that. I'm like, oh, my goodness. So we did. Drove all the way back there. It was called, and I, I had to go to the, the part of the conference that was called the Second Man Conference because I wasn't a senior pastor. I was just a youth pastor. So immediately you felt like, whoa. <laughs> And I remember going to these seminars and hearing their associate pastors, and I was just blown away. I would sit there, and I'd, the guy would come out, and guess what he was wearing? Black rim glasses. Real short, crew-cut hair, just like the pastor. Dressed the same. And when he started to preach, he preached the same. He'd yell at you. And I remember going to one thing, and they talked about their deacons meeting. They, it was a huge church. It was known for the biggest Sunday school in the world. They had a bus ministry that brought in like 20,000 kids from four different states. <laughs> it was just crazy. And I remember them describing the deacons meeting with the pastor they would have. And they, somebody said, how do you decide what's for lunch when you have these meetings? Because the church would finish, furnish meeting. They had like you know, 120 deacons in their church. It was a Baptist church, so they didn't have elders. They had deacons. And the one guy says, well, it really depends on what the pastor wants. Because we just want to please the pastor. It's all about pleasing the pastor. To the point where we want to dress like the pastor. We want to talk like the pastor. We want to look like the pastor. See, that's, that's not unity. That's just conformity. That's, that's not correct. There's something wrong. When you want everybody to walk lockstep behind you, you, got, you, you should go see a counselor if that's what you want. See, the church is made up of a diverse group of people, different backgrounds, different giftings, different talents, different education, different social backgrounds. And we're called, and our unity doesn't come from that. Our unity comes from what? Acknowledging who Christ is. We focus on who Christ is. And so as Paul writes to the Corinthians about their gifts, we can learn from this lesson from these, from these chapters, valuable lessons for ourselves and for our church today. Um, so they, they failed. Um, they, they, they took personal pride in their gifts. They were more interested in using their gifts for themselves than for the body of Christ. And they also failed to realize the importance of the smallest gifts or what would seemingly look like, oh, that's not a big gift, that's not a big deal. 
Sometimes in life, beloved, it's the smallest things that make the biggest impact. I'll never forget, years ago, I was building a computer from scratch. It was my first time doing it. I thought, this would be fun. You know, you just buy all these parts, and you got the case, and your motherboard, and memory sticks, all this. And you put it all together. Well, I got everything together. I checked everything. I powered it up. And as soon as I turned it on, the power supply went on, and I got excited, and it shut off. <laughs> I thought, well, that's not good. Something's wrong. Tried it again, same thing. I rechecked all the connections. Couldn't figure it out. I mean, I got so frustrated, I finally called the manufacturer of the motherboard. It's like, there's something wrong here. This thing's broken. And after speaking to a very polite, nice gentleman with a heavy Indian accent, by the way, I spoke to him for about an hour and a half on the phone. And he took me through every scenario. Oh, you got to do that? I said, I already did it. We'll do it again. So we did everything. And after an hour and a half, I sensed his frustration. I was frustrated. And finally, he said, let me have you do one more thing. I want, I want you to look at something on the motherboard. There's a, there's a series of dip switches there, little white switches. And I want you to check the third one over. Is it up or down? Is it on one or two? He goes, I want you to move it to the opposite. Whatever it is, just move it. And we're going to try this one more time. because I don't know what else to do. I'm like, okay. You know what? As soon as he did that, I did that, turned it on. I said, wow. Windows thing. I thought, this is great. That was it. An hour and a half later, small, little thing, but it made an impact on that whole computer that was made of all perfect parts. It was brand new, but it wouldn't work. See, sometimes the smallest things in life have the potential for the biggest impact. And sometimes it's the small, unseen Gifts, the people that are serving behind the scenes in the local church that really have a big impact. You know, I think of people who serve on our finance team, Ivor, Maricela, Alex, Peggy. You don't see what they do. They're over there holed up in an office, recording your offerings, counting your offerings, taking them to the bank, writing checks for people when they need reimbursement, all these things. Nobody ever sees it. Yet, you know what? We, we couldn't function without them, literally. So it's important not to glorify certain gifts and look down on others. Well, they also failed to recognize the importance of those people whose gifts were seemingly least useful. You know, sometimes we have people that maybe can't do a lot physically, but they can pray. Or maybe they can serve in some small way in the body. Um, We need to make sure that we honor them. And that can happen even in the modern day church today. We respect and honor those in the church who a lot of times do most of the ministry or for the ministry. We act as if they, they do God's work by their own human abilities and not by God's grace. We fail to see the importance of every member of the church focusing attention instead on those whom God is using most visibly at the moment. You know, sometimes it's not all what it seems. Um, You know, sometimes I come into this pulpit 
shaking, literally, in fear. That I would say something, that I would do something, that somehow I would communicate error in some small way to someone to confuse them in their spiritual growth. It's not a task that I look forward to. I look forward to understanding God's word and being able to communicate it. But my personality is not one to get up in front of people and do this every week. But you know what? That's exactly what God has me doing right now. And it's because he supplied the gift. He supplied the grace to allow it to happen. This isn't my own ability. You can probably say, yeah, <laughs> you got that right. But anyway, it's, it's important that we need to focus on every member of the church instead of just focusing on one or two that are in the limelight. And like the Corinthians, we also need, when we exercise our spiritual gifts, it shouldn't be um, for our own good. Sometimes Christians feel so blessed by using their spiritual gift, they turn off the, the faucet of, coming to the Spirit to see what they should be doing. And they just say, hey, I'm gifted to do this, I'm going to do it. And maybe God doesn't want them to do that at that time. And they've grown kind of um, just adequate in and of themselves, and they've forgotten that, no, wait a minute, these gifts come from God. They're not for your personal enjoyment. He's gifted you in the body of Christ, not so you could just sit down and enjoy your gift, Right? You've you've been gifted to what? To bless others with it. It's for the edification of the body, the Bible says. It's for the good of the body, the good of Christ's church. Now, it's important that we just take a second to remind us of what we're talking about when we talk about the church. You know, we're not talking about Grace Bible Church. We're talking about the church, the church of Christ. Um, the true church of Jesus Christ is not a, it's not a visible organization made up of humans headed up by some CEO or a hierarchy of officials. It's not a social agency to meet the needs and demands of the community in which they live. It's not even a place where you just come to get married or buried or baptized or whatever It's certainly not a social club. But unfortunately, that's what so many churches are today. That's exactly what they are. They're a social club. And if you ask a lot of people, why do they go to their church? They'll say, oh, I have friends there. It's it's all social. So they say, well, it's a social club of like-minded people. We can get together for fellowship and service activities, things like that. That's not what the church is about. The church as established by Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost and described and defined in the New Testament, I put a definition there in your outline. It is a supernatural living organism. It's not an organization. It's an organism. It's a living organism in which the spiritual body of Christ which he established and rules over as head and Lord, is made up of all those who are true believers in Christ. That's what 
the church is when we're talking about the church. And the members of the church are entirely and exclusively those who have become new creatures through faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior. Just because you come to our church membership class and you join our church, I mean, it's we vet you, we want you to understand what the gospel is. We want you to understand that, you know, to be part of the church, we desire you to be a Christian. And so we kind of listen to your testimony, make sure that you're a believer, as far as we can tell. But even with that being said, we've had people join our church that after a period of time, we've looked back and go, wow, I (laughs) I don't know if they were even a believer. Kind of squeaked through. But the true church, not Grace Bible Church, but the church of Christ is only, it's exclusive to only those who have been supernaturally transformed by God's gracious power, saved by faith through grace. Grace through faith. It's it's so important that we understand that. So whenever we gather together publicly for a worship service like this, I'm sure most of you are part of that church because I've heard your testimonies. But even a small group like this, there may be some that aren't. And you're welcome here, that's fine. But you're not part of his true church. The only way you can become part of that church is to put your faith, your trust in Christ and in Christ alone. So it's composed of human members, but it's not a human organization. It's an organism that's created and established and empowered and led by the Lord himself. And because, you know what, here's the good news, because he is the head of the church, because he's the Lord of the church, a lot of people are talking now with this COVID thing, oh boy, the church is in danger. The government's going to destroy the church. (laughs) Should you be so silly to think that? The church is eternal. The church is indestructible. Jesus tells us so. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus talks about the church and he says this, even the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. We need to be reminded of the purpose that the church has in today's society. It's not a social club. Remember, in the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen vehicle to reach the world. He chose that nation, and he said, here, I'm going to give you my law, and you're going to, I want you to, now they did a poor job of it, but that was his choice. And in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what do we see? We see Christ himself here on earth, the incarnate Christ, and his disciples. They were the vehicle. God said, you know what, I'm going to work through these 12 men, and my son, and I'm going to get my word out to the world. That's what he chose to do. Well, guess what? Ever since chapter 2 in the book of Acts, right up until today, there's another vehicle that God has chosen, and that is the church. The church is the vehicle through which God is designed to communicate his word his gospel to a lost and dying world. 
And it's not just through words, by the way. It's not just through words that we communicate with our mouths, but it's also through what we are. That is another way to communicate the gospel. That's why in John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, Jesus said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love what? One another. There we go, back to love, right? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then he says this in verse 35, and this is very important. He says, by this, by what? By your love for one another as the church. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. So we have to be careful when we come to areas of Scripture like this area we're about to go into. It's not that we don't look the other way and don't address error, but we do so with a spirit of love. And also in John chapter 17, verse 21, 21, he wanted all men, he wanted them to know that the Father sent him. That's what Jesus wanted everybody to know. And he wanted them to know that the Father and Jesus were one. And he prayed that in verse 21. He says, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the church plays a vital role in our society today. Big, small, doesn't matter. Our witness, then, is not just a verbal witness, It's not just the communication of the gospel with all its specifics, but it is the witness of love, and it's also the witness of unity. And you can see where the Corinthian church was blowing that. They just had a major issue there. But when we are one in love, the world will find our witness intriguing. And so the church is the the vehicle by which God designed to communicate to the world his nature and his truth, the truth of the gospel. And it's been that way ever since Acts chapter 2 when the church began on the day of Pentecost. And the unity within the church, by the way, is on the basis of humility and love. And when we practice those two things, then our testimony becomes greatest. Well, As I said, this was introductory today, but we finally get to our text. So I want to read our text for the next couple weeks out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're just going to hit the first verse on this today, but 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 11. Paul writes, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, But it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the workers of miracles, to prophecy, another, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues or languages, to another the interpretation of languages. All these... Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Father, I pray your blessing upon this word today as we just look at the first verse and come to understand what you're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 12 regarding spiritual gifts. I pray that your Spirit would help us set aside anything that would distract us from your truth. pray you give us wisdom now in Jesus' name. Amen. What's Paul talking about here? He's talking about the Holy Spirit's work in the life of the believer. He's dealing with the problem of spiritual gifts in the Corinthian church. And the first thing I want you to see here is we just look at this first verse today, now concerning, he says. It's fun to study Paul because... He, he's habitual in the way he communicates. He, he says things like this over and over again. And whenever you see now concerning those words in, in Paul's letters, in his writings, you always know that he's changing from something. He's changing the topic. He's changing the subject. And you say, well, what's he doing? Well, look back at verse 11, chapter 11, verse 18. It says there, for in the first place, and it's kind of like beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, you could say, and now secondly, in other words, another subject I want to share with you is this. So Paul has just finished speaking up to this point in the book about physical things going on in the church, of a physical nature. That's why we talked about bringing a fellow believer to court in chapter 6. Or fornication. It was a physical thing that was going on in their church. Marriage and divorce. When they would go over to somebody's house and somebody bought the the meat at a pagan uh, marketplace where they would sacrifice the meat to pagans. And we had to deal with that. Well, that's a physical thing. That's something you could put your hands on. Even the roles of men and women within the church, he talked about that. And he talked about their debauchery and what they were doing to abuse the Lord's Supper. All those things are physical. And now Paul says, we're going to change it up here. We're going to switch it up. And it's not the first time he does it. He does it back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. He says, now concerning the matters about what you wrote. Or... In 7.25, he talks about the unmarried. He says, now concerning the betrothed. What's he doing? He's changing the subject. Or chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. Here we have spiritual gifts, now concerning spiritual gifts. In chapter 16, he says, now concerning the collection of the saints. So it's his way of making a transition from what he was talking about to where he's going. And so that's the, the nuance of these spiritual gifts. He wants them to know that it's not just the physical issues that are going on in the Corinthian church that are causing these problems. It has a spiritual nature to it. 
and it deals with spiritual gifts. And that's the second point there in your outline, the nature of spiritual gifts. Notice he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, the word gifts in your Bible should be in italics if it's not. It's not there in the original language. The word gifts, simply not there. You could say, now concerning spiritualities, that would be a good translation. Pneumatikos is the word, and it, it deals with anything that has spiritual qualities to it. It can talk about, it can be talking about people. Some translations actually use that translation. They say, now concerning spiritual people. I don't agree with that. I think gifts is the right nuance of the word. It's in the neuter. It's not in any other case that would make it think that we're talking about people. But it's talking about our spiritualities. And so he wants us to understand a little bit about these spiritualities or these spiritual gifts, the spiritual makeup of the believer. That's really where he's going. And let's just share a couple things when we, when we use the word spiritual gifts. What are we talking about? What are we not talking about? Well, spiritual gifts, first of all, there's a list there for you. They're not natural talents or abilities. You know, I just came from the piano. You know, I've been playing the piano since I was probably 11 or 12. I learned on a home organ, Hammond organ in my home. I just sat down one day and thought, how do you turn this thing on? I want to start playing it. And I've been playing some form of keyboard ever since then. Self-taught. That's not a spiritual gift. See, there's a common misunderstanding among Christians. Some, maybe they play a piano, they play an instrument, or maybe they sing, and people go, oh, boy, that's such a wonderful spiritual gift. No, that's not a spiritual gift. Now, actually, it can be used with your spiritual gift, your talent. Some people are very gifted um, speakers and things like that. And so God maybe gives them the gift of teaching, and so they can really teach because their natural ability is to get in front of people and speak. And then you have other people like me that the last place you want to be is in front of people speaking to them and looking at them. You know, you'd rather go in the back room and hide with a microphone and just talk to them that way. I would feel a lot more at ease doing that, just personally. But see, they're not natural talents or abilities. Secondly, they're not the same as the fruit of the Spirit. This is very important. Turn over to Galatians, the book of Galatians, chapter 5. They're not the same as the fruit of the Spirit. I've heard people say this, that, well, you know, spiritual gifts, that's, that's the fruit of the Spirit. No, it's not. See, this, understanding this and this alone here, this will help you understand how this dysfunctional, dysfunctional Corinthian carnal church was able to use spiritual gifts. Because Paul said, you know what, you're not lacking in any of the gifts, Corinthians. you got all the gifts going on. And he was commending them for that but they were using them in a wrong way. They were using all the gifts, but they were carnal. They weren't using them in a spiritual sense. 
Look at this verse, verse 22. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit... Now, right there, when you see a good person of the Scripture, when you study the Scripture, when you read a verse like that, and it starts off with the word but, what do you want to do? You want to go back, right? You want to go back and say, well, wait, what was he just talking about? Because he's obviously switching something up here. Well, look at verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. So Paul is switching from the works of the flesh, which are evident, and what that means is they are, they are very uh, easy to spot. It's not hard to tell when someone's operating in the works of the flesh. And he gives a big list there of bad things that you can look for. But you notice it's not a complete list because at the end of verse, where is it at? Verse uh, 21 there, he says, and things like these. He lists off all these bad things, and he knew that these brethren in Galatia were going to say, well, he didn't name my pet sin, so I guess I'm okay. I got a pass. And Paul said, no, I'm going to name all these bad things, and then anything like this, anything that depicts the flesh. What do you notice between verse 22 and verse 19? The works of the flesh are evident, but the fruit, one thing I notice, is the works of the flesh, that's plural, works, right? There's many works of the flesh, and they're very evident, they're very easy to spot, but you know what? The fruit of the Spirit is not so. How do you know if I'm utilizing the fruit of the Spirit in my life? I mean, maybe by the way I act or whatever, but I could put on an act for you. I could be thinking a vile thought right now, and you would never know. You can't see my heart. You can't read my mind. God can. But what he's saying here is the fruit, notice, is it plural? It's not, is it? It doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit. See, we, we have a tendency in the church today to look at the, the fruits of the Spirit. All nine of them, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we think it's some kind of a cornucopia of fruit you'd have on your, your Thanksgiving dinner table. You ever have them growing up? You know, you had that... that horn-looking thing, and you got all the fruit and squash and stuff put in there. I always thought that was cool. I'd go through there and dig for the nuts out of there. You know, we'd have walnuts in there and all kinds of things. But we treat the fruit of the Spirit, we think it's fruits. It's plural. So we think that we have the opportunity every day to say, well, you know, today I feel like a little love. I'm going to grab a little love out of that basket that God has given. Maybe today I'm... feeling a little peace. Or maybe I need a little patience. And we've convinced ourselves that somehow we can pick and choose. But that's not what Paul is saying. He says the fruit of the Spirit. You can't just pick one of them out of that bunch. If you're a Christian and you are filled with the Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit is in your life. Now, it may not always be evidenced, But it's there. 
If you have the fruit of the Spirit, you have all nine of them. And they all should be operative in your life, or they should be. They might, might not always be. That's when we have to repent, right, and ask the Lord to continue to use us and fill us anew with His Spirit so that these fruit, this fruit can be evidenced in our life. So it's, it's a big difference here. They're not the same as spiritual gifts. The fruit of the Spirit is singular. Now, what's important to understand is, I think it's always best, and this is important to hear, when you're using your spiritual gift, that you utilize the fruit of the Spirit it's, it's a lot better for everybody. Because if you're not utilizing the fruit of the Spirit, but you're using your spiritual gift, guess what you're doing? You're doing exactly what the Corinthians did. You're using it in the flesh. And instead of being a help to someone, you're harming them by using your spiritual gift. Because you're not exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. You're becoming a burden to people, not a blessing. So we have to be aware of these things. They're not the same as the fruit of the Spirit. Another thing here in your outline, they're not evidence of spiritual maturity. They're not evidence of spiritual maturity and growth. That was the problem that the Corinthians made. They thought, well, they had the gifts, so they're mature. And Paul had to come along and say, you know what? I can't even treat you like mature people. You're like babes in Christ. I mean, by now you should be entertaining some hefty doctrines. You know, I I taught you well, and I was there 18 months with you. And then you had Apollos teach you, and he's a good teacher. But you're like little babies. And so just because someone is using their spiritual gift, it doesn't mean they're spiritually mature. God truly may have given them a certain gift. But because of their immaturity or their lack of growth, they're not helping the body with it. They're harming the body. Next thing there, next point, they're not given to you because you pray or ask for them. (laughs) That's something people don't understand today either when it comes to spiritual gift, especially in the Pentecostal or charismatic movement. I've been to meetings where, you know, the pastor calls up people after the service and says, hey, if you want to receive the gift of tongues, come up here and you, we, will, we can teach you how to do it and we'll pray for you. I've told people that you've got to pray all night for that gift. That's a special gift. And boy, they're just walking all over what Paul taught them here in Corinthians. Your gift is not given to you because you prayed or asked for it. That that verse down there in verse 11, chapter 12, it says, the Lord apportions, the Spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. You don't get to pick your gift, sorry. I mean, that may be disappointing, but you know what? I look at it as, I wouldn't want to pick my gift. Because I definitely wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. If I could pick my gift, I wouldn't be doing it. 
So they're not given because you pray for them or you ask for them. God divinely appoints the gifts. He distributes them. And then they're not acquired abilities or talents. And you say, wasn't well, that the same as the first point? No, it's not. They're natural talents. They're natural abilities. I'm talking about acquired. In other words, you can't learn to have one of these gifts. I can't take you to a class and teach you how to have the gift of prophecy or the gift of teaching or the gift of helps. I can't do that. Once again, they're given by the Lord himself. As a matter of fact, I remember when I was I left Bible college and went right into ministry as a youth pastor. And I had taken several, you know, seminary courses and stuff, but I, you know, never had the money nor the time to really acquire that graduate degree. And I remember just feeling kind of discouraged over that. I remember we had a speaker here at the church, and I was talking to him about it. And he said, what do you, what do you think that's, that's going to make you a, a, a better teacher? Because you have a degree? He goes, I think you're, you're misunderstanding your spiritual gift. He said, if you have the gift of teaching, guess what? That's not coming from you, pal. That's the Lord working through you. And I, I never thought of it that way. And he told me a story of a person he had in his church on staff. And he had been to seminary, had many degrees after his name, knew all the languages, everything. And he was new to ministry. They hired him on, and the pastor said, all right, you know what, I'm going to give you this Sunday school class. You've got ten people down there, and I want you to go down, and here's what you're going to do, teach them through this book. Well, he went down there and started teaching. Within three weeks, no one was in the class. And he came back to the pastor, kind of frustrated, because there's nobody coming to my class. The pastor said, okay, well, let's try this again. <laughs> I'll give you this other class. I'll give this class to somebody else. I'll give you this class. It's got 20 people in it, and see how you went down there. Same thing. Took a little longer, six weeks. Pretty soon, he's down to like two people. And the pastor was gracious, and he said, <laughs> You know, I mean, he's got the education. He's got, he's a great guy. Maybe he just fumbled or maybe he's nervous. I'm going to give him one more. And he gave him one more class. Well, he bombed again. Finally, sitting in the pastor's office, just defeated. Both of them are a little nervous because the pastor was about ready to have a pretty difficult discussion with this guy who spent, you know, 10, 10 years going to seminary and graduate school and paying, you know, multiple tens of thousands of dollars to get these degrees only to find out, you know what? His spiritual gift was not teaching. He couldn't teach. And the pastor said, you know what? I think, I mean, you're a bright guy. And there's, a, there's what's called a gift of knowledge. That's not like supernatural knowledge, you know, knowing, but it's, it's, it's the ability of kind of discerning knowledge and gathering facts. And he says, you know what? I think you're more along this line. I think your giftedness might be in this area. Why don't you try this out? And he just excelled because that's what he was gifted to do. 
See, God's giftedness to us is not based upon who we are or what our intellect is or how many degrees we have. He sovereignly gives these things out. I mean, I've listened to pastors preach, and just you're just flabbergasted. You're just going, wow, I've never heard someone preach like this before. And almost, you know, wanting to know, you go up to them after the service, you go, hey, you know, where'd you go to school? School? I've never been to school. I barely graduated from high school. What? I mean, you're putting out all this information, good information. How do you do that? I don't know. It just happens. Now, I'm not saying there's not good things that come out of education. We all need to be educated. We all need to continue our education daily. But don't put so much emphasis on education that you're you're thinking, well, I can't do anything until I get all my education. Once I get all my education, then God will finally use me. See, God should be using you right now if you're a believer in the body of Christ, somehow. And however he's using you, that's where your giftedness lies. Well, what are spiritual gifts? They're the result of God's grace. We don't do anything to earn them. It says there in verse 6 of, of, of Romans, excuse me, Romans chapter 12, verse 6, it tells us clearly how they're, they're distributed. Romans 12, verse 6. He says, having gifts that differ according to what? To the grace given to us. Let us use them. Let us use them. They're given to us as a result of God's grace. We don't deserve anything. We don't even deserve salvation for that matter. But God gives it to us out of his grace. We don't do anything to earn these gifts or deserve them. He gives them to us out of grace. And by the way, they're given to all believers. All believers have at least one spiritual gift, if not more. And that's important because you can't claim ignorance. You can't claim, well, you know, I don't have a spiritual gift. Yes, you do. You may not completely understand what it is or how it works yet, but you know what? If you get busy for the Lord and you start to ask him to use you for the body, in, in the body of Christ for his glory, he will lead you in that path. He's, the Holy Spirit already knows what your spiritual gift is. Just because you don't doesn't mean he's not going to use you. They're given to all believers. Every believer has at least one spiritual gift. And then we'll just touch on this as we close. Thirdly here, we also have not just the nuance and the nature of the spiritual gifts, but the need for understanding. Look at what he says in the first verse. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, talking to believers, he says, I do not want you to be uninformed. Uninformed or ignorant, you could say. It's the problem of ignorance. We have a lot of ignorance going on in the body of Christ today. People think they know certain things that they don't. And really, they're unwilling to learn. They're unteachable. 
And this isn't the first time Paul mentions that. He, he, there's a bunch of verses there. You can read them on your own. But uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 25, he points this out. He's talking here about Israel. He says, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into cultivated olive tree, how much more will these be? That's not the right verse, is it? 11, Romans 11, 25. That's what I want. Oh, next verse. Let you be wise in your own sight. So he's talking about Israel here. He says, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. And he he goes on there, but he talks about there the partial hardening of the heart. And he wants them to understand. That's a way of saying, I don't want you to be ignorant about Israel. I want you to completely understand it. Or the end times he talks about in 1 Thessalonians. We'll mention that last week because we're out of time. But it's important for us to realize that, you know, when we come to this chapter, chapter 12, 13, and 14, and we start to begin to talk about spiritual gifts, it's very important that we understand that God has given them to the church for the unity of the church, not for the divisiveness of the church. And so when we minister to the members of the body of Christ using our spiritual gift, we want to do so in a helpful way, not in a harmful way. We don't want it to be a burden. We want it to be a blessing. And that's what God desires from us. So next week, we're going to get a little further in our study here. And we're going to be talking a little bit about the mystery pagan religions that were part of Corinth and how that even played into their understanding of their spiritual gifts. And you'll, you'll be amazed at what the similarity is when you understand what was going on in the church of Corinth and you look at some of the modern-day charismatic movements and what's going on in their churches. It's very similar. And we're not here just to be critical of that, but we're here to point that out. So let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for his willingness to address this issue in the church of Corinth concerning spiritual gifts. And Lord, I pray that as a church, we would, first of all, understand that these gifts are given to us by your grace. We don't deserve them. But Lord, they're not just given to us so that we can play with them. They're given to us so that we can use them for the edification of your people and your church. And Lord, as we unify our hearts and minds around the gospel of Christ, I pray that we would be a picture to the lost and dying world around us. But we would be a picture legitimately of the love and unity and forgiveness and grace that's found in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us not to be spiritual snobs or self-righteous. Lord, there's no place for that in the life of a believer. But Lord, you need to fill us, our hearts, with humility each and every day. Recognizing that without your grace, without salvation that came through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we would be utterly lost, steeped in our sin. And Father, we thank you for freeing us from the burden of our sin through the cross of Christ. That he was willing to pay for our sin. Take it upon himself and thereby grant to us his righteousness. Because we have no righteousness of our own. 
Father, we pray this morning that you would just do your work in the hearts of each one gathered here. If maybe there's someone here who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ. Maybe they've been trusting in, in religion. The big difference between religion and Christianity it comes down to two words. Religion is really represented by the, the word D-O. It's what you do. You've got to come to church. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You can't do that. You can't do this. And somehow we've convinced ourselves that we can earn a righteousness that can only come through Christ. And the word that would describe Christianity, in my mind, would be D-O-N-E, done, what was done for us on the cross. That's what we put our faith, that's what we put our trust in. And Lord, we pray that you would clearly communicate that to each heart here this morning. We're all but a prayer away, but by the grace of God, Lord, just save me, Lord, by your grace. Be merciful to me, a God. God, and save my heart, save my life. Help me to turn from my sin. It's a prayer that's when it's prayed from a sincere heart, God will answer. We thank you and we praise you. Pray you bless our week that we might be proper representation of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the church that we represent. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen.